0: Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast, can at times contain adult language and themes. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Welcome to the Digital Dissection podcast, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties, creators, and topics. We are your humble hosts, Joe and Mark. Two pop culture nerds dedicated to telling entertainment history before it's forgotten too soon. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, and our blog for more information on the show. We also love to hear from you, so why not write us at digital dissection podcast at gmail.com. And now that we've got that out of the way, let's get to dissecting.
0: Hello, fellow nerds, and welcome back to Digital Dissection, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties and creators. Today, we're joined by an absolute legend of TV and film, having over 180 credits to his name. This includes Conan the Adventurer, Seinfeld, Employee of the Month, and Mirror Mirror, just to name a few. He's advocating for change within the entertainment industry, making the world a better place for individuals with disabilities. We're honored to welcome danny woodburn welcome to the show danny how are we doing today uh, i'm great i'm great mark uh, and doug
2: and nate and joe it's a pleasure to be here
3: <laughs> we're excited to have
1: you and i'd like to add to the accolade one of my favorite <laughs> movies of all time and i think it was your first actual feature film was jingle all the way
2: yes uh that was my first well not my first feature but my first mm-hmm. like big budget studio uh-huh. I, had, um, I had made some smaller appearances and uh what was my first film oh the magic of the golden bear part three okay so Ooh. <laughs> i i missed the first two um with <laughs> with believe it or not cheech marine and mr t
0: Oh wow. Wow. Nice. yeah um. that
2: was my first first feature but yeah jingle <laughs> was my first big budget and um uh, Brian Levant the director of that actually brought me into to work on Flintstones 2, Beaver Rock Vegas So and I still talk to Brian from time to time and of course jingle just had their 25th uh, Anniversary this past Christmas, so that was pretty
1: mind-blowing. To yeah me. Yeah, oh god 25 years ago already. Yeah to this day. It's still
0: one of my favorite quotes is uh, Who said you could eat my cookies? <laughs> Love it. Every year. Look at you uh, Bringing yeah. out the
2: Arnold impression
0: hey, I, I heard you have A, a wonderful one as well Because I, I saw one of your speeches Where you've actually used it before
2: nah. um, So
0: I'm sure that his accent's Rubbed off on you a little bit during, yeah, during Come on you idiot
2: don't be, don't be an idiot come on.
4: <laughs> uh, you know, here's, the way,
2: here's the trick Anybody can do it Here's the trick to doing a Schwarzenegger impression You have to begin your sentence As if you're going to vomit so it's like, it's coming up. It's coming up. Here comes the schnitzel. So my, and I got it from like, you know, obviously being on the set. That's where I picked up the impression because he had a guy, his dresser, his on-set dresser was, he had a name, but Arnold called him Dunce and um don't know why i called him dunce but he would go dunce and dunce would go yo and then he would (laughs) go over for whatever so my first day on the set and i'm it's a scene where they're it's a scene where they're driving across the bridge we're driving across the bridge and jim belushi is singing this song he makes up this like goofy uh, christmas song in the in the car it's a wide shot but there's a little closer shot of arnold driving by in the in the jeep and so um He's about to start, they're about to roll, and he yells, Dunts, and Dunce comes running over and, and he goes, Candy. And Dunts reaches in like a pouch, pulls out a hard candy and pops it in Arnold's mouth, and then runs out of the shop. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, oh. This this is how this is. This is this been this weird. Is Everything means. else like before that it seemed normal, but now, oh. <laughs> right. That, now I now I know the key to becoming a billionaire. You have to be able to talk to people like that um no but he was a trip he was a lot of fun and you know whenever you work on a show there's always like the captain of the set you know mm-hmm. and you know the directors and producers a lot of times take can take a little bit of a bassy to some of these performers because they're just so uh charismatic and fun and mm-hmm. you can see why Arnold has had such a long career you know uh, oh, so his, his whole thing was that after a take, he would go, very nice, like that, you know, like we finish a take and he would be happy with it. And he'd go, very nice. So at the end of the run, he gave everybody hats that said, very nice. You know? Wow. <laughs> that, was, that was his thing, you know, that was his thing. Uh, yeah. So, that I mean, Jingle, you know, proved to be like, it's great to be in a Christmas movie because it just runs forever and ever and ever uh and i've done right. i don't know four five of them five at least by now
0: yeah and seriously that movie is timeless it also has the late phil hartman uh, it's absolutely a timeless classic it's part of my holiday must watch lineup
2: and yeah. phil is just so great um uh you know originally it was supposed to be i think phil as the lead as the arnold wow. lead. yeah and huh. and so i and this is a story i only recently heard and so you know, when they brought Arnold in, it's like that just cinched the whole film. Like, oh yeah, we're gonna do this, cause Arnold really, really pitched for that. And um and I think maybe Arnold was gonna play the Sinbad role. I forget how it was. Anyway, it was definitely a, a, a total, totally different setup. But Phil plays that sort of weasley guy with such perfection, you know. You know, down to the like the little smiles he gives, and you feel like he's looking right at camera, but he's not. It, it, it was just such a great. He was such a great performer. I just, I really admired his work because um, he could take even the smallest yeah. thing and just blow it up. You know, there's a there's a yeah. actors like that. You think about like Gene Wilder, who I uh, actually worked on his show behind the scenes back in war. <laughs> I guess it was. Uh, he had a show called Something Wilder, and uh, he was a dad. Uh, you know, an older dad with a younger wife and. Uh, the show didn't last more than maybe a season and a half or something like that. But being on that set with Gene and watching him work where he could take just the smallest thing and blow it up to the biggest thing. You know, it's just all about raising the stakes. Um, mm-hmm. He was such a master at that. And that's why, like, if you watch Gene in one of his earliest roles um, in Bonnie and Clyde. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Bonnie and Clyde War Beatty. Uh, and, yeah. um, and, uh. <laughs> Faye Dunaway, uh, but Gene Gene is the husband, and the, these newlyweds who get, you know, hijacked by Bonnie and Clyde, and they're driving along in their car, and and uh, he's, he, you know, he plays this nervous energy really well. But he just he just really draws all the attention to him without doing it intentionally. You know, he's just really, really just a master of of presence on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I, I uh, love a lot, a lot watching him, just watching him every day on the set. Turn turn one line into like a whole <laughs> soliloquy in a sense, you know, and you see that in all his work.
0: I imagine that has got to be kind of surreal to, you know, sit there and observe. You know, we've heard that from other actors, too, who get caught up in the moment and you forget where your spot is, you know, on that on that scene. <laughs>
2: right. Yeah, it's it's funny because it's the, um, you know, it, you know, I, I was such an admirer of Gene as a boy and I saw every one of his movies, you know, even the obscure ones like Sherlock Holmes Smarter Brother. I don't know if you ever saw that. Yeah. Um all these sort of unusual films that he made, um, some with the uh, Marty Feldman as well, besides young Frankenstein. Um, but to be able to work with people that you grew up admiring and idolizing and, and feeling like these are role models for your career and then getting a the chance to work with them. Uh, it's, it's always like those moments where you're pinching mm-hmm. yourself. Is this a dream, you know? Uh, that was definitely true of working with Danny DeVito and Robin Williams on Death to Smoochie. Mm-hmm. That was just mm-hmm. like, you know, to have a scene with him mm-hmm. uh, is is definitely a dream come true. It was one of my favorite films to have worked on in my entire career was just that. And, to, and you know, I grew up watching Taxi and watching all these Danny DeVito, Mm-hmm. movies uh before i even made it uh in la and uh so i was a big admirer of him him and he was a, a dark dark comic in that sense um as yeah. robin called him he's a mm-hmm. troll without a bridge <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a perfect description <clears throat> <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: well so like I- you Oh, go ahead. Oh, it's
1: like you mentioned like, um, like getting inspiration from Taxi and other shows that you watched growing up. Is that kind of like what got you into wanting to be an actor in the first place?
2: Yeah, I, uh, you know, I think one was my desire to make people laugh. Um, two it was fun. One, it was fun, and two, it was a really great way to keep from being beat up as a kid. <laughs> you know, looking looking different, being on being a small guy. You know, uh, you have to figure out ways to. fit in and so comedy for me was my way in and um uh you know i I grew up with this i had a single mom uh raising three boys and you know back in the 70s you did a lot of babysitting yourself and sometimes the babysitter Mm -hmm. television and so you know Mm -hmm. I, i watched and absorbed everything uh back then and you know the first episode of seinfeld you know where um, and there's a bigger story around this, but the moment that George Costanza uses the M word with Mickey,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that mm-hmm. that beat where Mickey mm-hmm. and and, uh, and Doug, you probably turned this into a meme already, where he grabs the countertop, <laughs> where he goes, <laughs> and he grabs the countertop like that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's that that is quintessential Danny DeVito, right? That that little. Oh beat, wow, really? That beat is like right out of that. You know that mm-hmm. that whole like angry Danny DeVito moment, you know.
4: Um, I, I actually had, th- this is actually coming to one of the questions that I had actually prepared for this. Um, that scene always really stood out to me while watching Seinfeld. And you you mentioned big television and movie personalities and how they kind of break out of the screen, people like Danny DeVito, etc. And And, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I w- would see you on Seinfeld, you know, you didn't seem like one of the, you know, tertiary characters that come and go, you know, you came onto the show with such a strong presence that you were almost, you know, like a, a Newman, a a close friend of Kramer, a staple of the show. Right. Um, Right. But another thing about that part um, that resonated with me and you mentioned like, you know, George uses the N word and then you correct him. Um, Did you have any input on any of that? You did. So yeah,
2: the original script, um, the original script doesn't have me address it at all. It's just a, oh wow, c- completely nonchalant toss out of the word. And in my audition, I improvised uh, a response to that. Um, oh wow! And you know, it was awkward for I think uh, Jerry and Larry because they're like, you know, here's the thing: there's never going to be like a very special episode of Seinfeld, and so we we didn't want to go down this sort of preachy path. But I said, at the Mm -hmm. same time, I said, I can't let the word go without addressing it somehow. And, Mm -hmm. you know, either that or they changed the word. But, you know, their argument was that George is this guy. He's going to use the wrong word anyway. But I said, that's fine as long as I can address it somehow. So we came up with the reaction, you know, which was like, I have the reaction like, and then I, you know, do the slow burn over to him (laughs) like I'm going to kill him. And... (laughs) And I tell him, it's little people. You got that? And then uh, Michael Kramer says, and this is completely improvised. Michael goes, easy, Mickey, easy. (laughs) So so that moment, that, that little, my need to address that word and then Michael's response in the moment totally built up who Mickey was. He was yep. a guy that was ready mm-hmm. to beat the living crap out of you at yeah. any moment. You say the wrong thing, you do the wrong thing, you are going down. And so by Michael going easy, Mickey, easy. It just cemented who he was. And I, I think mm-hmm. it, it was it was key to the opportunity for me to keep coming back because it was it was a great way to show these exchanges between me and Michael always fighting one another, you know. Yeah, or me, yeah. me mm-hmm. always going after him. Because yeah. he has well, like he screws everybody over, but I'm the only one that'll kick his ass for it. You
4: know, to say, you always like burst into it, like
3: when he stole your cirrhosis. I mean, it was just
2: yeah, from zero yeah. to like
3: 100 in just a exactly. second, exactly. Just that's all it takes. And, and
2: uh, there's so many great beats like that that I remember. Um, and you know, we Michael was such that, like, here's how a show runs uh, it's a five day. You know, five day rehearsal and shoot. So you rehearse for four days. You know, the first day is the table read and then the writers go back and do what they can. So the first day I went right from my third callback right to the table read. Right. So it's like I went in, I did my audition with Jerry and Larry. We I talked to them about this this bit of business with the M word. And then um they said, Well, wait outside, but wait in the inner office. So that like resonated with me. Ooh, inner office, that means something. I don't have to go all the way out. I don't have to leave, I'm sitting inside. Um, so they went out and then they basically said, thank you very much to the other guys that were out there auditioning. And then they came to me and they said, um, you got the part, but we're starting right now. Can you start right now? And I said, absolutely. Uh, and it's my very first sitcom. I had I had actually done stand-in work on another sitcom, so I knew how they ran, but I had never done a sitcom at this point. So this was, uh, 1993, December 93 is when we shot it. Um, and uh, so we went to the table read and we got to that point and um, that point where I'm supposed to fight with Michael and uh, I we're all at the table, but we go at each other across the table in the table read. And that sort of broke the whole, thing. <laughs> So that was like, uh, it's not normal, you know, to like <laughs> physical <laughs> in the table read, but we, we made the choice to do that with each other. And Michael was the person who, uh, rehearsal was very important to him. And mm-hmm. the way you would shoot is like, you would do your scene and then, you know, people would go back to their to their dressing room or their trailer or whatever, and they'd wait for their scene to come up again. So, and Seinfeld usually had like 16, 17 scenes sometimes. I mean, you if you go in and count every time they cut to a new bit, you'll count like 17, 18, 19. Sometimes there's so many different scenes uh, that they fit mm-hmm. into 22 and a half minutes. You're like sort of blown away by how they can get so many in. Um, but he would say, Danny, like, well, we did not rehearse a bit. So we would go, we would go and like some part of the stage and rehearse the stuff. And, and the day we rehearsed the physical stuff, we didn't know. It was written that like Mickey jumps on his back and Michael spins around. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, Jesus, yeah. I'm, you know, one of us is going to get killed in this.
4: And it's probably going to be me.
3: <laughs> um,
2: and I, I just. One didn't...
4: of the best. Yeah. Um, is, um, where you're telling him to sit down and he's yeah. wearing the, the, the tight jeans. Yeah. Um, that's think. one I could think of where, where you eventually <laughs> attack him. Was that something that you rehearsed, or was that – At multiple that point, tapes, I mean, or... I think
2: that was, like, the third episode I did. So at that point, like, it was established that at some
4: You point, just had it down. Mickey is
2: going to kill. Him. <laughs> Mickey will go for him. Um, <laughs> it was just so established. But in, in those first moments of try, trying to come up with how it was going to be – I said i didn't like the sort of animalistic version of mickey you know where he's you know clinging to his back or grabbing on his leg and i said mm-hmm. it really needs to be man to man you know mm-hmm. and i thought it's going to look much funnier too this michael's like six three and i'm four mm-hmm. feet and, and you know if we if we look like we're completely evenly matched you know uh-huh it just looks funnier and and i usually of course <laughs> get the upper hand anyway So rather than, rather than, you know, I get the upper hand by jumping on his back. I get the upper hand going face to face with him. Um, And it just worked much better. And it was also a lot safer. So that first moment where, you know, where we grab each other um, in the first episode, and, you know, he's, we're shaking around like this. and, uh, And he grabs my jacket and he's hanging on to me and, Throwing himself all over the place while holding on to me, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just holding on for dear life. But he, we're, we're <laughs> he's doing all the work, and I'm just like, I just gotta hang on to him, you know, and make it look like <laughs> I'm in control, you know. But he had, he was the one in complete control in those bits, uh, except when I tackled him and, you know, nailed him yeah. to the ground or whatever. Uh, <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: yeah, but I think my favorite fight is at the, the double date. The yada yada table. The restaurant. Yeah. Same uh-huh. oh, yeah. 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 shirt. So yeah. That was completely, that was just made up on the spot. Like whatever we were doing, it's just like whatever happens, happens.
3: So. so, so wait, wait, wait. So, so who was the right choice, Karen or Julie? Like who would you have picked? <laughs> I think I ended up with Julie, but I
2: honestly would have picked Karen.
3: <laughs>
0: we were always trying to figure that that out too you know who is the your preference of the friends like who would you pick um we're happy to have that mystery solved and another question that came up for us we've asked several creators where their jumping off point was in their career we were doing our research and and some folks have pointed towards it being you know singing woody guthrie to your mom or Ah, you know how did you find that story that's funny well, I was going to ask the question. You know, was that the starting point, or was it the you know the Viet Rock uh, performance group that you were with? I mean, where where did the, uh, the like the I guess the fire? Where, where did the spark start for you here from a performing standpoint?
2: Well, I think you know that's like my my earliest memories of doing any kind of performing is is acting out the Woody Guthrie album, which was a seventy eight speed record, by the way. Uh, yeah that's that's how old i am it was a 78 speed record uh and it was called songs to grow on and you know it was just like it was like a kid's album musical kids album for kids to sing or whatever but i didn't sing them i just performed the lyrics that he was singing yeah like one of one of them was called take me for a ride in the car car take me for a ride in the car car it was just a, a cute kid song and i would just sort of act it out you know um uh there was another one about waking up uh yeah so i just as a little kid i would do those and then my other earliest like in front of an audience kind of a thing was in first grade before the teacher before mrs lukens who is still with us before mrs lukens would show up uh to the class and all the kids are in the class me and this boy um roy prouty and another boy dave reynolds We sort of keystone copped it where i was on the run and i would run around the room and these two guys would chase me and just as they got close to me i skillfully i will say took a chair and flipped it behind me and the two boys would (laughs) go tumble and so this was like a routine that we did on a regular basis and then that's like an early memory of like making a class laugh and then and then knowing this is something because i had to stay after school every day until my mom came and got me because something I was doing was not to her liking. Um, So yeah, I remember having to stay after class quite a bit because of those antics. Uh, But those are my earliest memories. And then being a a wise-ass in class, coming up with one-liners periodically to break up the class. And then, um, yes, performing on stage and and getting that opportunity. Uh, Viet Rock was, um, it's a musical about Vietnam uh, and I didn't really have a role in it at first. I was assistant director with uh, with my then uh, acting teacher Kevin Cotter, and uh, but he wanted me in the in the show somehow. So he started to just sort of stick me in here and stick me in there during rehearsal, and then I became part of the ensemble. And we wrote sketches that were in in the play on top of the play itself, and I was in some of those sketches. Yeah. And then then I just was like the whole second act. I'm I appear on stage silent. Uh, I'm sort of overseeing all the Viet Cong, uh, Mm -hmm. which were played by all the women in the cast. It was a very unusual, (laughs) unusual Mm -hmm. piece. Um, So I I think I get a lot of that sort of silent performance ability from watching those like old slapstick comedies and, you know, watching, of course, the Marx Brothers. There's a lot of stuff that, Mm -hmm. even though there's a lot of language and talking and jokes in it, there's still a lot of Visual, physical stuff that goes on, and so, you know, yeah. and and of course Chaplin, watching Chaplin as a boy, uh, and the Three Stooges who do, do a lot of work in silent. I mean, you could think of like Curly and Shemp. They both
0: yeah. they yeah.
2: both did the same. They like recycled the same script where they're plumbers and they show up to fix this plumbing at this party, and Curly's in the shower and and trying to repipe the repipe the shower while it's running yeah. <laughs> puts on a pipe and then puts on one pipe and then the pipe has a, a T at the end so now the water's shooting out of both and he keeps up yep. i just put it on another pipe and then the whole thing he builds all the way around and and the, he's just built himself a, a cage of pipes around him so that's all like silent picture stuff but i just sort of remember that physicality and all of those kinds of things and my brothers and i we would act out the shows together and and try to make each other laugh so my brothers were a big impact too michael and stephen uh were a big impact as far as us performing together my mom played classic piano too so she would play and uh we would do our like probably the most hideous ballet you could think of (laughs) three three boys dancing and around my mother during her classic (laughs) piano playing
0: i'm really happy you mentioned kevin connor because we do have some fan questions that we pepper into the conversation. And this just happens to be one of the first ones. Uh, you've mentioned Kevin Connor as one of your early influences in, you know, previous interviews before. How did Kevin begin to open doors into acting for you?
2: I think I think he he was very validated for me. He he trusted me a lot to to you know in improvisation or in in doing the work I was doing, he he just trusted me a lot. And I I felt like I was, you know, I'm on the right path here, you know, because I think some people get an acting class and some people use it, like classes I've had even later. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think this is ever the case in college, but when I came to LA and I took an acting class, a lot of people used it for therapy in that sense. And the acting teacher was a therapist to get them through these difficult Mm -hmm. moments. And I was like, that was never my thing. And I think it just comes from, for me, him validating my talent uh, for whatever I was doing, you know, he would sometimes cite me as an example. Like, you know, you see what he's doing? You see what he's doing? Like, he would say these kinds of things to the class, and and I was like, oh, I must be doing something right. Um, so yeah, for for me, it was a validation, and he became not just like a mentor, but a friend too, you know. So I stayed in touch with him until he passed, but it was definitely definitely one of these one of these people that had an impact on me and and sort of taught me too what it was. It wasn't a put on, acting is not put on, it's like a whole embodied experience. And so he taught me that. Uh, and I I learned that pretty quickly from him. Whereas some people yeah. I think struggle for a long time before they hit that that aha moment of, oh, this is what it is,
0: you know. It's a good point you bring up actually. A lot of artists have the talent side of the business, you know, and the business side and trying to balance both but to kick off your career you know when you first got started you had to go door to door so it was kind of a combination of running you know both sides right
2: there was no social media so you literally went like you pounded the pavement you knocked on a agent's doors and and um uh i went to this one guy george george j i think his name was george j
4: mm-hmm.
2: uh and it was he was literally in Hollywood, like off Cahuenga and Selma or something like that. And, uh, right off the Boulevard and just like a little, like just a door with a window (laughs) that was like blacked out with a black shade. And he, it was just a room in a brick building, uh, that you felt like, I don't know, like maybe it was the back entrance to a Speezy, like 50, (laughs) 70 years prior or something like that. It was just the weirdest, Office space in Hollywood, and so I literally knocked on the door I, I went in and I'm immediately sitting in a room where he's at his desk and he's got all these pictures up and all the pictures back then are black and white, but there's like no wall space it's like picture 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 there's no wall space yeah. um and you know when you when you're starting out and you see all these pictures uh, of actors who you don't recognize, you've never seen them before, you don't know who they are. You're like immediately terrified. Like, oh, there's a thousand pictures on this guy's wall and I don't recognize a single person. None of them are working. Um, uh, But I remember just him just being completely unimpressed with me. Uh, And so that was a no.
4: Um,
2: And then I, I went to this I don't know how I got there. I, I came across some other little person in town and then they told me, oh, you should check out this lady. Or, or maybe I went to Samuel French bookshop, which was like a place to go and buy industry books and sort of figure out, oh, where should I try to get myself into an agency's door? So I went to this woman, Coralie Jr. was her name. That was the name of her agency. And her name was Coralie. Now Coralie was very old school. She's actually a, a former member of the Little Rascals. Oh, wow. As a little girl. So she was like really old Hollywood. Her 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 godfather was uh Warner Oland, one of the two original Charlie Chans. Right. So wow. she's just like old Hollywood and she had she had a wall of pictures, um, and it was like classic wood paneled uh, wood paneled room, uh olive drab carpeting, you know, like okay, yep. she hasn't changed anything since 1968, you know what I mean? And I see all these pictures and all black and white, of course, and they're all like these vaudeville acts, like fire readers and plate spinners and like the craziest kind of stuff. And I literally, I I step into her room and uh, into her outer office and she's got like a, you know, the old post office, you just had like a counter and a window. So that's what it was, like a counter and a window. And it's all her family that runs the agency. And she looks at me through this little window thing and she just goes, "How tall are you?" And I go, "Uh, I'm four foot." And she goes, "You're perfect." And I go, "What?"
1: <laughs> <No>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> she goes, "You're right in the middle between three foot six and four foot, and four foot and four foot six. That's always the call, right? So it's either you know, the call is either for a little person between three foot six and four feet, or four feet and four foot six. So I I was right there at the middle, and so in her mind. I'm perfect. I didn't audition for her. I didn't do a reading. I gave her my acting resume, which consisted um, of what my uh, theater credits. Um, I was an extra <laughs> in a music video. So I lived in San Diego for a little bit and I had a uh, an agent like in Oceanside, California. Right. So it's like 40 minutes out of San Diego and 90 more minutes to la right so oceanside what was her name i don't remember her name anyway their their agency was also like very prominent in the baha'i faith which i found to be like a very california religion and uh i don't know <laughs> about it but i just know i only ever heard of it in california um so the agency sent me from san diego to la to get 40 bucks to do in a music video as a as a member of the crowd. So it's like nothing unique about this package was of any interest, I'm just a guy in the crowd. So then the next thing is I moved to LA and I got a job in San Diego uh, as an extra, but it was a costumed character for, um, this is gonna be some trivia for you guys because nobody knows this, Killer Tomatoes Strike Back oh yeah and with uh with the comedian rick rockwell uh who was a nice guy rick rick i knew from the comedy circuit but i met him first on killer tomato strike back and i was an alien and i had like a big latex alien head and you know like one of those mylar jumpsuits and just like really cheesy alien character and uh i i remember the alien head, this big latex you had to pull it over and I have a big head, it didn't fit my head well. So it was, they would fill it with talcum powder, pull it down over my head. And my eyes would be literally pressed against the, the thing. So it's like pulling oh. my eyes back and it's horrible. And I drove two and a half hours to do this job for 40 bucks. And and I'm I'm like, this, this can't be it. Uh, and this was my agency. And of course they get 10%. So I get $40 and they give them four. Okay. Yeah. So that was there. That's the whole thing. Um, <laughs> so then when I got oh, to Corley, Jesus. I wrote to them and I said, hey, I'm no longer gonna be working with you. And they they threatened to sue me <laughs> because <laughs> I don't know why. And I'm like, I, I don't, I'm not doing anything. I, I, like, what are you suing me for? And I was like, this was the weirdest thing. And then I went to one agency party at that place before I left them. So, thinking it was going to be like a networking opportunity. It was like a spiritual night about the Baha'i faith. And I'm like, ah, I, I don't want to be a part of this. This is, this is just too California for me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, well, you mentioned social media a few moments ago, not being in influence, you know, then like at the time, but it does lead into our next question that Doug will take us away on.
4: Okay. So we mentioned meme culture before and things like that. And I have uh, viewed a lot of your social media stuff. Do you see a lot of memes that you're featured in? Are you aware? Obviously, you're aware of these things happening. How do you feel about that? Do you think that it it keeps um, properties that you've worked on alive longer, more in the public eye? Well, the memes basically don't have me speaking, right? I mean, they're used,
2: it's
3: just like a visual. We can we a, can make you say video. anything we want. I mean, we can uh, exactly <laughs> <laughs> that happens. can mean,
4: pull in inco- <laughs> all kinds of photos, whatever we you know, love saying. It. Random people are communists. Anything that's uh,
2: <laughs> that first one is uh, Yordi Papavasilopoulos from, as I call it now, mullet. She wrote because of that <laughs> hairstyle. <laughs> that <happened. laughs> um. Yeah, I'd, I'm okay with it. I think it's if they start using you in a meme to sell product, uh, that's a different story, you know. That but definitely if, would be. Yeah. I think if people are just, you know, throwing stuff out there, I, I, I'd love to see, you know, sometimes I look at a picture and I go, what the hell is that from? I have no idea. Like, I think <laughs> the second one there, I wasn't sure of. Which one is What's that? It? The one after Bjorgi.
3: This one? Hold on. Yeah. I just pulled these up here, like, yeah. not too long ago. Yeah. I, was this I one?
2: What that's from. I have no idea what that's from. <laughs> oh, I,
3: I, let, me, let me see where I sourced it from, and I'll let you know. Because it was from... Uh, Those are the bullet years. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Lord of Illusions. You were a forensic oh,
2: photographer. God. I had, like... <laughs> uh, that, was a, that was a joke. I, I got a call from the, my agent, and they were like, Hey, they really want you to do this role of this forensic photographer. And, you know, you're so, and then they go, Can can you bring your car? And I'm like, Wait, do they need me or my car? So I get there, and I'm I'm literally there all night. And it all comes down to just like, I am totally wasted. I just drive up, uh, get out of my car, (laughs) drive up in my Toyota Tercel, which I had at the time. Get out of my (laughs) forensic photographer owns a Toyota Tercel. I get out of my car. I go take pictures of the body, and then there's like a big crane shot. And then there's like, I think another little snippet of me in a room with, um, that's uh, uh, Scott Bakula.
3: That's Scott Bakula? I I could look it up, I could look it up. Yeah,
2: I think it's Scott Bakula. I'm in a a room with him and he just sort of walks past me and I'm like, this isn't a real job. This is just me being an extra. And I was like, okay, whatever. I guess it's another credit, blah, blah, blah. but that, that's, that's why that I don't recognize nice. it, because it was a pretty uneventful uneventful show for me.
0: I mean, it was <laughs> so. a chance for you to rock that haircut. It was. It was just <laughs> one more <laughs> opportunity.
2: And to, my Tercel has starred in a number of productions, I think, is the thing.
0: Denny, we were always interested about the diversity of roles you've taken, because you've had a heavy amount of roles that took place within the fantasy realm, or fantasy properties. And for four out of the four people speaking to you today... You might be able to tell that we're fairly nerdy ourselves so this is subject matter that we appreciate Um, i was interested in getting your take on being in these fantasy roles you know is there any difference to how you prep for these uh you know being in in, in the different kinds of costumes and how it's different from other roles
2: well you know i i came from this like big fish in a small pond kind of feeling you know when i was at college i was Till the end of my college career, I was always in a production every year, maybe two in the in the span of one each semester. You know, uh, by the time I was a senior, I I was actually working uh, in local theater. I had a I had done an off Broadway uh, play, um, so I was like very much against any of those kinds of roles. Uh, but then, as the more I thought about it, I was like, if there's a humanity to the character um you know one i want to keep working and two if i can find the humanity in the character where he's not stereotypical or he's not you know there just to be like a an ob- object or just to be a sight gag or something like that then then i can justify it for me um i was never big on the pointy shoes <laughs> but because for one they're they're you know they're not very comfortable but you know i i, I came to realize that a lot of these roles that I'm doing are bringing a lot of happiness to people and you know there's no there's no humiliation in bringing happiness I mean obviously there's there's been things that have come my way that I've said no to because that you know the intent is to sort of make a mockery of of dwarfism or little people or Mm -hmm. or to play off some sort of trope you know like a lot of times the tropes were around a pathos around size right so The assumption is a writer would make an assumption that, oh, because he's little, he he hates his life, you know, which is just so not not the case. It's being a little person is more about why society doesn't accept you as opposed to why you don't accept yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was always written like I don't accept myself because I'm small and I don't fit in as opposed to, Mm -hmm. you know, Screw, screw you people you know you better figure this out because i'm i'm here i'm a human being just like the rest of you and i don't need be tossed uh i don't need to be hypersexualized or dehumanized because of my size and so i've i've taken roles and completely transformed them uh from what they were and i've also lost jobs because you know writers are are so keen to what they've written i had an audition example i had an audition for um uh a show, Picket Fences was the show, and the, mm-hmm. the in the scene, the character, the little person character, bites Lauren Holly on the butt, and then asks her oh. on a date, and I'm like, oh, and, God. and I'm like, and she and she says yes, you know, as opposed to, <laughs> yeah. and she doesn't call the police, you know. It was just so disturbing to me, um, and I spoke up in the audition, and they they like. You know the casting director didn't really care to hear me make my points about it and and how it's not realistic and how it's dehumanizing and how it's not only degrading to me but degrading to the woman uh so there was no interest and it went no further for me and somebody else did the role and i watched it to see like did they change it did they do anything no they didn't change it uh and i have told this these stories many times i have been asked to bite people uh at least three times in production to the point where I was going to fly to New York to do a show. And I said, it was in the script that I bite one of the other characters. And I said, I want it in my contract when I fly to New York. I don't want to be surprised on the set. I said, put it in my contract. There will be no biting on the ass or yeah. of any kind. That was literally <laughs> in my contract. Um, because, you know, you show up at a thing and they're like, no, you really have to do that. Because that's what the producers want. So I just made sure that I wasn't going to get, you know, bent over yeah. actively mm-hmm. when I got there. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's been times when roles have come and I've been able to transform them and, and times when they've come and I've been turned down because they don't want anything to do with the transformation. So i changed a lot of the things on the, my first episode of Bones. I, mm-hmm. I did a show called Silk Stockings, where I, I, I sort of rewrote the whole premise around my character in that. Hmm. Um, because they made him a murderer because he was little and i was like he's not a murderer cuz he's little he's a murderer because his wife is screwing other people <laughs> that's why he's a murderer or whatever yeah. um mm-hmm. and so they you know they changed all of that and then it just it just humanizes me or the role i'm playing much more and that's that's what's important if i can if i can even in playing a fantasy role if i can humanize the character like mirror mirror you know there's certain things on that on that film that i i will I turned down from doing or being a part of, cause it just, it wasn't my character. And I didn't like the imagery uh, around the little person role in some of those beats. So I said, yeah, I, I won't do that, mm-hmm. but I will do this. I won't do that, but I will do this. So there was some, some things in there that I, I was not comfortable with that I did not do. But at the same time, I felt like, you know, there's a lot of talk now about the new so White and I don't know much about it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I understand it, I understand you know the negative feelings around it by our community but i also understand it's adaptable it can be modernized um uh it, it's not everything about it is wrong um mm-hmm. like for my character in mirror mirror he was a teacher essentially and that was the backstory that you know he used to teach and then they were shunned by the queen and they all had to live as outlaws you know elsewhere yeah. and so you know we all sort of justified our our places in that regard. And so it's a different kind of story around the Seven Dwarfs mythology. And but I'm also against them like that same year Snow White and the Huntsman came out and they used all average size characters to average size actors to play the seven dwarfs. And I thought, see that that just sort of makes it more acceptable in people's minds so that they can do whatever they want because they're not really mm-hmm. that. They're just playing that. Um and what, that's, that's what did you what did
3: I'm just... Just curious, where did you feel comfortable in your career to where, like, I'm established well enough that I can say no to these things, I can, you know, reshape it in there? Because, I mean, initially in your career, you probably, maybe you didn't. I don't know, maybe you did. I, I did. I said it.
2: no a lot. I said no a lot. I said no a lot, and it was frustrating because I felt like, am I ever going to work because I keep getting this this crap brought mm-hmm. up to me? Uh, but I just, I just, certain things I couldn't do no matter what. And I remember being on one set um, and feeling Feeling this way because i was just some lowly extra this was very early on Uh, i was like i went to do a day on some show um and they use the m word in the scene with us and we're all extras and there's five of us there and uh they make a reference to us like like we're not there and uh Mm
4: -hmm.
2: everybody was upset about it you know but nobody would pipe up and um Mm -hmm. so i i said look this is (laughs) I said to the lead, and I don't want to drop his name just because it's so old. Uh, mm-hmm. But I said to the lead, "Look, this is this is a hate word. This is a hurtful word for our community, and you can't just sort of bandy it about without without the recognition that it's a hurtful word." And um, so they changed it in the scene that we were in. uh They changed it, uh, so they go. Uh, so one actor walks up to the other actor and goes. Got midgets, and he goes, little people, right? So that was that was the exchange. It's a little more broad than that, but I, I didn't want to yeah. get into it yeah. that much. Um, mm-hmm. But then later, <laughs> they used the M word again later in the show uh, to say, yeah, the midget joke was a little too far. And I thought, yeah, that's a, that's a bit of control I don't have, mm-hmm. right? So I can be in the scene and maybe make a change in the scene. But that was a learning, a learning moment for me teaching moment for me, because I was like, okay, I, I realize now that if I don't have more say or I don't have more control, I can't put myself in this environment. Uh, and then
4: well,
2: and they, they appease us in the moment, but then go right back to whatever the hell they want to say uh-huh. uh, what is- happened. And you know, my, my gut feeling was, you, you bastard. Um, and I actually come to work with this guy years later and he didn't remember me from that show, uh, which is funny. Um, but yeah, I worked with him for several days on another food movie just recently, but, um, it made me, it made me realize like thinking about like the Watchmen, for example, when I, when I Mm -hmm. put the Watchmen, I had a great concern because the language was of the eighties, right? And Mm -hmm. all throughout the, throughout the, um, the comic, uh, throughout the graphic novel, they refer to big figure as midget. And I was like, I can't have them say that about my character uh, unless I can address it in in the scene mm-hmm. right so yeah. they can't just say it somewhere else in the script so I put that in my contract that it wouldn't be said anywhere in the script unless it's to me and I get to respond right so that I either I can respond with with venom and explain that it's you know something something that I get to put my, mm-hmm. my teeth into <laughs> to, to make sure that it just doesn't get bandied about. Uh and they never use it throughout the entire script. And and you know, my scene with Rorschach in the in the prison, I don't know if you guys know it well. It's yeah, it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's yeah. in your realm mm-hmm. of nerdiness, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It's, you know, graphic <laughs> novel, it's in your nerd realm. Yeah. Um so in those scenes, you know, they're making he's making sort of some short jokes, but but my response to it is I, I have the power, right? So when I have mm-hmm. the power, it feels like okay, I can I can I can take it because I'm I'm holding sway over this guy in this moment, so I can mm-hmm. you know, I can go yeah yeah whatever you know that's my response to the short jokes, but uh, yeah that that moment from 1992 or whatever it was pre Seinfeld was a teachable moment for me mm-hmm. and and then of course
4: Seinfeld when they said it I was like I can't let it not be addressed ever again yeah. the one in Seinfeld um, obviously that was viewed by millions and millions of people do you <laughs> think that 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 had I mean, to me, that probably had a very big effect on our culture and the use of that word at the time because it was viewed by so many people. Do you think well, that? You know, you it's be it's for funny. That? I, I,
2: I, I like to take some credit for it, but I really can't because this here's the thing. Billy Barty had been talking about this for quite a while. I mean, you can go back mm-hmm. what, 12, 15 years before my Seinfeld episode. So like mid, mm-hmm. mid-80s, early 80s, he's in an episode of Love Boat and he makes sure that the term is little people. He makes sure to let people mm. know that. So I was like, Billy had already been doing that and already been changing that message before me. And I just I just noticed that throughout my childhood and young adulthood and seeing whatever it was used on screen, it would never got mm-hmm. corrected unless, it never it never got corrected unless Billy was there. You know, uh-huh. so it was mm-hmm. either, either Billy had to do it or the next person in line had to do it. and uh, I, I was lucky enough to be that next person in line to, to make that mm-hmm. and, and it was a very important moment for me to you know that's 1994 and you know already for me I'm, I'm 25 years into that word <laughs> you know 1994 mm-hmm. uh, or into understanding what that word means and how it's used to dehumanize you know I mean I, mm-hmm. I think I learned by the time I was five or six that people use that word in a way to describe me in a not nice way you know Mm -hmm. Um, and so 25 years into my understanding that word I finally get to say something and that's a big deal Um, so it was a big deal for me Uh, I'd like to think that it had some impact um, and certainly it reruns and reruns and reruns so that's I'm grateful for that Um, but this -hmm. conversation is still happening I just saw a a post on Twitter about the very this very thing um, that Twitter won't won't acknowledge it as a derogatory word. Uh, wow! So, <laughs> wow! So that's 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 an issue. You know, they'll they'll mm-hmm. they'll consider many other words to be derogatory, but they they won't acknowledge that. Um, so my feeling as, as I said on Twitter, my feeling about derogatory words is any word that reduces a particular people's humanity is derogatory. That's basically the rule mm-hmm. in my mind. And so if the word is used to eliminate a person's humanity, then eh, let's take it out of the vocabulary of hate, you know? I mean, I realize as an artist, as a writer, you're going to use it. You're going to create these these places. But I think if we have until we have a universal understanding, Mm -hmm. it is it has been used to dehumanize people for so long that it has it, it can't be just sort of left left as okay. Right, so you know Mm -hmm. when characters use it on screen, and it's seen as as okay. That's when there's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Because people, when people use the N word on screen, we all know that's not okay, right? So we can we can we can make assumptions about the character. He's racist. He's an asshole. He's whatever. Um, We can make assumptions about the character that uses that word. Mm -hmm. But when people use the M word, people say midget on screen. We don't make any assumptions because it's still universally accepted in a lot of
3: circles can I you know we were. I talked about a few things beforehand but looking at on the episode of Seinfeld to stand I have to keep going back to Seinfeld but um that kind of I do too <laughs> like, yeah let's no, just say it, it kind of you know opened uh, my eyes a little bit on there you don't really see a whole lot of like kind of pulling the veil back a little bit um to kind of see how maybe little people might interact or kind of like that business if there is a business there where there are some (laughs) roles that are exclusively played by you know little people obviously um and we we were kind of curious like what was your input on like that episode like on the way that was done um did you have any like say so i mean obviously the, the the funny part there was they were saying like you know you got caught using lifts you know, I don't know if that's a sensitive issue yeah. or not. I mean, I don't know if like you've been cut using <laughs> lifts
2: or something. Communism? Or someone... You didn't know communism was a sensitive issue? <laughs> uh no, it wasn't. I mean, that was that was just sort of humorous to me like to create this this completely um nonsensical way to ostracize Mickey, you know. I mean, I felt like you you have to be you have to be sort of silly to believe that that little people putting lifts in their shoes would be looked at as a as a terrible thing <laughs> in the little people um mm-hmm. so no that wasn't like that was that was something they did they created it on their own it was a very funny beat mm-hmm. i thought and you know i it's so over dramatized like you know oh crap you know uh johnny Vigiano went through my locker he knows i'm heightening you know um, it's, it's so absurd! And what a great name, right? You always you always compare, you know, pair up the silly with the with the kooky name, Johnny vigiano I mean, you can't get more, more like more New York Johnny
0: Viggiano. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's great. Uh, yeah.
1: So you've you've made new comments on um, kind of like what you've done to make a change in the industry and kind of where you're hoping to see it com- where you see it move so looking over your twitter i noticed that you are pretty active in promoting the real abilities film festival and when you dig deeper you're actually one of the founders of that right
2: um i'm not a founder i'm a i'm like Mm -hmm. a board advisor for the new york and okay festivals Mm -hmm. um i've i've been working with them since 2012 and i think they're about 13 years old now Mm -hmm. so yeah I, i first started working with them about 10 years ago and um uh, I helped bring the LA, the LA version of the Real Boni Festival to LA four years ago now, I think was the first one. And, um, but my advocacy is largely around, uh, disability, you know, performance with disability, getting, getting work mm-hmm. in our industry, getting more opportunities. Um, the industry having an understanding that the opportunities aren't, uh, always availed just sometimes due to accessibility issues and you know the reality is by law you go to a job interview it should be fully accessible by law under the yeah. under the americans with disabilities act um but uh, ours is like one of the only industries where the that's overlooked quite a bit um and case in point i went to an audition years ago for a pilot and the character i was playing was a guy who was using a wheelchair but he mm-hmm. you know he was kind of faking it so he would Periodically, I guess, get up out of the wheelchair. Um, but the reality was that a person who was mobility impaired, that maybe was was a wheelchair user sometimes, because that's the case. Sometimes a person is a part-time wheelchair user or whatever mm-hmm. could have audition for that role. But they made the audition on the second floor of an older building, so they made it completely huh. inaccessible, inaccessible mm. to somebody in there. I was, you know, I was the only person with any kind of say. Let's call it mobility impairment to go to this audition. Uh, And I'm not a wheelchair user, um, but the mere fact that they didn't make it accessible means they didn't consider a person in a wheelchair to play a person in a wheelchair. And so that's where we, you know, want to make changes. We want to make sure that these opportunities are created. And then also, uh, you know, people with disabilities make up about 58 million Americans, 22% Mm -hmm. of the population. Anywhere between eighteen and twenty-five, people argue, but I'll say twenty-two percent of the population. And um, the fact of the matter is that that these opportunities are not there—not just for the roles of characters who have disability, but for just to be like the person next door, or you know, pizza delivery guy. Like a pizza delivery guy that like mm-hmm. a friend of mine once played a a driving instructor, and he's a double hand amputee. So it's a great scene with him as a driving instructor, and he has these two hooked hands, you know, that he uses every day in his everyday life. So, um, mm-hmm. but why can't we see that kind of thing more often? You mm-hmm. know, that seeing people with disability in everyday life. Of, you know, you go out, you go to the grocery store, you'll see a person using a the special cart or the or their own wheelchair, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, somebody who may be deaf um, working somewhere else. You know, you see these people in your everyday life. So why can't we see these people on screen in in what would be considered everyday life, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we hardly it, ever see people wanna, with disability on screen, hardly ever. It's like a unique thing. Yeah,
0: you almost want to ask writers, you, know, you want to ask the writers of these shows, you know, what, why can't you incorporate this? Well, you that know, comes down to, why to the to writer's
2: room now. Now that you think about the writer's room, yeah. um, not necessarily being inclusive of people with disabilities. So it starts from the opportunity to get there. So there's only a handful of writers that I know that are writers with disability. Um, and most of the ones I do know aren't employed. So it's, it, we know that there's a disparity in the access to education. We know there's a disparity in access to employment. So it's it's up to the industry to make sure those doors are opened in the same way now that they're making sure those doors are open for people of color, that they're open for women, that they're open for, you know, people over 45. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we look at women's careers, you know, 15 years ago, they were ending at, by the time they were 40. Uh, whereas now there it's, you know, the, the shift is changing. Um, and then we look at the Oscar So White campaign from 2016 and we watch the shift. Uh, of creating more opportunity for people of color in this industry, for the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. Um, But in that, in 2016, when all that was going on, people with disability were not only excluded, but by some organizations, intentionally excluded. Like it was a point of order to not include disability in this activism. Mm -hmm. Did I heavy it up? I heavied it up. No, 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 no that was good. I'll slip into an Arnold mm-hmm. impersonation right now. <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> yeah. You got to let the man in the wheelchair. You got to let him be on the screen. Come on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no. no, no like, I think that was that was a great direction to take it um, because these things need to be talked about. Uh, I, uh, My sister has grown up um, with spina bifida, so she has a pretty severe physical impairment. And... I see her struggle with like even the simplest things like getting a dentist appointment when she is trying to work off of disability and she doesn't have insurance and there's supposed to be providers in, in my hometown taking care of that. And they basically like brush her off or tell her to call back tomorrow. And she ends up missing out on these services because she has to work twice as hard just to get the things that the rest of us just have regular right. access to. Right. And the thing is that our industry can really change that because the
2: more we tell these stories, uh, like a story like your sister's the more we tell these kinds of stories on screen Then the more society acknowledges that mm-hmm. there is a disparity. There's a disparity not just in education Opportunity, but also health care uh, it, it, It's it's astounding. It's astounding to me that that your your sister has to Endure this kind of bullshit mm-hmm. just to yeah get what did you say a dentist appointment dentist? Yeah, a just, appointment. just to go to the dentist. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you know and, you know, people, p- this is like the language of disability is changing all the time. So people say, oh, you know, special needs, special needs. And uh, a friend of mine says, he argues, my needs aren't special, you know, yeah. right? So your sister just wants to go to the frickin' dentist. Her needs aren't special. She's the just point. supposed to go to the dentist, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, uh, that that kind of stuff sort of makes me really angry.
0: You know, I wouldn't say you made the topic too heavy at all. I can clearly tell that this is important to you and it's literally a fan question that Joe specifically is going to ask about. So Joe, when you're ready.
1: All right. So you've reached agreements with CBS and NBC to audition and cast more actors with disabilities. Have you seen data from this agreement yet? Is it, are we going in the right direction?
2: Well, I, I talked to, uh, I have friends in the DEI departments and, um, almost every studio in town, people mm-hmm. that I can talk to places, people that I work with, people that come to me for consultation. Um, so we know we are creating these opportunities, but we can also look at, without looking at the data, we can look at the characters that are on screen, you know, just thinking of like, uh, right out of the gate, Lauren Ridloff in The Eternals. It's a young yeah. woman, deaf actress. Um, and then we can look at uh, uh, the television show C. Uh, I know yeah. a number of... Uh, uh look blind and low vision folks that uh work on that one friend of mine was a not only an actress in it but a consultant as well um so i know these opportunities are coming but when i look at the numbers right so i i think it's it's a bit soon to know the numbers there's 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 mm-hmm. two reasons why it's hard to get the numbers one is my own union uh doesn't they do a casting data report and the way the report is accumulated is maybe not the most uh, functional way, but the casting data report comes out annually that talks about uh, marginalized communities, uh, people of color, women, women over a certain age, men over a certain age, uh, Pacific Islanders. You know, when it talks about all, all aspects of diversity uh, and, and what the numbers are on a set on screen, you know, that are working on a set on screen, uh, television and film but they don't report on disability in this way. And there's a, it's a complex um, relationship regarding the ADA and how it can open up, you know, uh, the possibility of lawsuit to collect this data. Um, but that aside, other organizations do collect it. But like, for example, uh, USC, I worked uh, closely with USC uh, professor uh, Stacy Smith in helping them to collect data around the top 100 grossing uh, films of the last 10 years, Whatever, I forget what the study was exactly, but to, to show like where, you know, what the curve is in terms of hiring people with disability or dis- disability represented on screen. And that doesn't necessarily mean actors, but sometimes it does. So just to see what the number is on screen. But when I think about when I started my career, there's about 140, 150 TV shows on. Now there's, you know, 500 <laughs> TV shows on. Yeah. And yeah. so if you say, oh, we got, you know, we've got this many people working. It's like, well, what is that in, the, in terms of the ratio from 20 years ago when we only had 150 shows on TV, you know? So yeah. it's it's tough to know exactly where we are in the game just because the studies aren't, aren't always being done. They're piecemeal. Like UCLA puts out a Hollywood report every year, uh, you know, in terms of diversity in Hollywood. And they call it diversity in Hollywood, but they make—they don't even use the word disability in the report. So they never yeah. even acknowledge it. They never look for it. So it's still a battle in a lot of areas to make these changes. And you know, part of my day-to-day work, besides being an actor, is talking to uh, diversity, equity, inclusion departments um, around this industry. It's CBS, I have close relationships there. Uh, Amazon, Netflix, I. Talked to pretty much everybody. Um, I worked with the uh, Ruderman Family Foundation for four years, basically bringing them into this industry, like hand holding them through the door and introducing them to everybody that they've essentially met up to this point. Um, and they've made you know great strides, like that, like those uh, casting opportunities and and getting a bunch of actors to sign commitments. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've had sit downs with like um, Brian Cranston, my old castmate after he played the character in a wheelchair, you know, I talked to him about that. And I said, look, this is uh this is an area that's, you know, pretty sensitive, uh, to our community. And he said, well, you know, the PR people seem to have handled it. Okay. And I go, that might be the perspective, but the reality is yeah. this is, this is going to brew and brew and brew. And, uh, so I just wanted an opportunity to talk to you about it. So we met, you know, over coffee and just chatted for like an hour, uh, he was in New York doing a network on stage. And so we, we talked for a long time, you know, we caught up We did all the old Seinfeld fun stuff, you know, Tim Watley, the old Tim Watley dentist stuff, (laughs) but he's a guy that has a voice. And, and so we came up with this sense. I said, look, if, if a marquee name is going to be committed to doing a, a role like this, I understand that. I understand that you need to sell tickets, whatever. I do understand that, but, you have to understand that until we get these actors in the door to reach the place of Marquis, they're never gonna get to the place of Brian Cranston unless mm-hmm. the opportunity arises. So I said, when you have to make a commitment to me that when you take a role like this or anybody, any project that you're working on where somebody is taking this role from uh, a wheelchair user or some other person with disability, you must give three. So if you take one, you have to give three. So that's, I, I call it the Woodburn ratio now. So for every for every one role you take away from a disabled performer, you have to give back three in the same production. It, and it, it just, brings up you know, a really good however point. That, yeah. However that works out, you know, because then we get to see more people playing, you know, n- non, non, non-descript roles, right? So it's not necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, like I've played a number of non roles. It's like, it's not necessarily important that my character has dwarfism. It's just that, Annie Woodburn happens to have dwarfism and happens to be playing this role. Like I just did a role uh airing March 4th um on station nineteen. Uh it's, I think it's one of those Ava DuVernay spin-offs of um I think it's a spin off of Gray's Anatomy. Uh anyway, I I play a documentarian. Uh, who is crushed by a falling chandelier in a haunted house? And I, I, have, I have to be—I have to be rescued by Station 19. And um, but you know, there's nothing in there about my size. So that's what I mean by nondescript role. There's no—you know—I just happen to be in this package playing that role. You know what I mean? So that's—that's that's the thing. When I think it's important to have opportunities for people with disabilities to come in, be in their package mm-hmm. and play that role. And, you know, yeah. I, I laid down the whole day. So they could have cast somebody who's a wheelchair user, you know, they basically moved me from the floor mm-hmm. stretcher and carried me out on the stretcher. So I I never walked the whole day, you know. <laughs> uh, wow. Mind you, it was terrifying being on that stretcher as it was raining that one day in Los Angeles, it was raining and they were coming that old house in West Adams district, which is has these big old beautiful mansions from like the early 1900s turn of the century mansions. And some of them have been untouched since the turn of the century too.
4: And uh, (laughs) I
2: just remember these, these EMTs carrying me down this on the stretcher um, and just being terrified that they're going to slip on the wet steps, you know, and that's, You know, then my career
4: ends,
2: (laughs) but, um, like I said, I, it could have been anybody in that role, somebody who is mobility impaired, somebody who's in a wheelchair, they could have been in that role all day on either under the, under the, uh, chandelier and this half the ceiling or, um, carried on the stretcher, you know, could have been anybody.
0: Something I was interested to ask you about, Danny, a bit about the shift in your career. I had a chance to watch, you know, Hot Flash with your wife, Amy, who is absolutely hilarious. Uh, and the series was really well written too. After looking at your current projects, I did notice Gumshoes uh, as well that represents uh, individuals with disabilities, particularly, you know, younger actors. And wanted to know if you could talk to us about this project and where it is in its development.
2: Well, it's still in development, but basically it comes down to um, kids being seen kids with disability being seen authentically represented. So we had a little teaser that was shopping around, and uh, it's it's all of our kids. We shot it actually during the pandemic, this teaser. So we worked with parents and shot remotely. and and so we're shopping that piece around because we feel it's important to uh, uh, show these these kids representing people with disabilities, and so that, you know, as my wife says, kids can see themselves on screen you know other kids yeah. can see themselves on screen mm-hmm. and that's that's really the most important part of all of this is uh you know changing the paradigm at such a young age um and and you know these kids are all kick ass all of them you know we we're lucky to get them to we're able to do to do what they want. Uh, so we'll see. we'll, you know more to come on that front for sure
0: well, we will absolutely be on the lookout for sure which, this actually brings us to our last fan question of the day, which Nate will help us out with. Nate, when you're ready.
3: Yeah, sure. you know, <clears throat> I, of course, my, my favorite Danny Woodburn appearance is actually in uh, Employee of the Month. <laughs> I thought your appearance there was hilarious, and I don't know if we have any time to talk much about any of that, but you, you came into that and just just beat it down. I mean, you were fantastic in that I role. Get,
2: I, I get lucky because I
3: play a lot of assholes and <laughs> you looked they, like you were having a great time though like you were smiling oh, like 90 yeah. percent of the <laughs> yes. time beating on uh, was it tim bagley and that and just beating tim up bagley on him
2: fantastic fantastic actor friend um yeah we we you know we're all like they were all like roundlings and stand-up comics and it, it was just laugh after laugh after laugh for us so um yeah be, being able to like like stretch the limits of what is socially acceptable uh, yeah. and being able to play that role on screen, you know, cause that was like, I is just an abusive bastard. I'm the abusive older brother <laughs> to Tim Bagley, which is like, there's the irony. Um, uh, and, you know, I got to make up lines and probably some of them you don't even catch. Um, I think one of my favorite ones is when he's playing baseball. And uh, I said, <laughs> you couldn't hit those balls that they were on your chin. <laughs> I think it goes by really quickly and like not only people catch it. Was that an original yeah, or, that was, or was that, that in the that script? that was mine. That was mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, and Tim's a good sport to take that beating like that. And he's, he, he, you know, he plays the a really great, you know, he's got this sort of Don Knotts element happening, you know, nervous Nelly around, around my character. And, uh, you know, we just, it was just such a fun shoot because it was just a lot of, you know, also we were in a Costco, like at, we started work at like 10 o'clock at night, <laughs>
3: you know, yeah. so, Arizona, right? Was it? Yeah,
2: uh, no, it was, uh, New Mexico. We were in New Mexico. Okay. We were in Santa Fe for part of the time. And then in Albuquerque for part of the time, the Costco was in Albuquerque. And, uh, yeah, we, so we work overnight <laughs> In the, in the Costco. And it was really tempting mm-hmm. to like, like just go through and take a bunch of stuff, put it in a cart, put it in my <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really, really tempting.
3: Um, did you keep yeah, the that, pink jerseys?
2: Oh, no, I didn't keep the pink jerseys. No, I, I forgot about the pink jersey. <laughs> Funny side story to that. I actually, um, I detached my retina on that show. Uh, don't know how I did it. <laughs> I have that, it's part of my syndrome that that I can, it can spontaneously happen, but I think there was two key moments. One, in the celebration in the locker room, I shake up a bottle of champagne and I shoot it, right? So in the first take, I shake it up and I'm leaning forward and I shot the whole thing right in my face. So like the very first (laughs) take, I soaked myself and I like really blasted my eyes with the champagne. So that was one and i thought okay that could have done it uh luckily i finished the shoot before i had to have surgery uh and then the second one was um running around the bases i have a a friend of mine who doubles me running because i'm not really a runner so a friend of mine uh, doubles me running and then the dive into the dirt is me so i dive in to the dirt and the ump is kicking sand in my face literally on the ground and uh, a kick that the dirt and dust in my face. And I think that has something to do with it too. So those two moments just sort of set me off. But luckily I got to finish shooting the film. Um, there's always something that goes wrong on a set, right? I mean, uh, I know we didn't talk about Conan, but that was probably the most dangerous show I've ever worked on. I mean, we, <laughs> we had we had like rattlesnake wranglers who would go through, uh, go through the woods in the scene before us first and like beat out any rattlesnakes that were in the, in the woods wow <laughs> so and then um uh we did a scene i don't know if you guys ever watched the show we did a scene where uh we're fighting some you know cg monster in uh sort of a lagoon but this lagoon spills over a waterfall and uh in the first half in the first take um i say to one of the one of the guys one of the pas borrego was his name I go, borrego I said, if I get close to that waterfall, I don't care if they're rolling. You jump in and keep me from going over, because I don't want to go over That's the waterfall. Right.
0: That's right.
2: So, yep. so Borrego is like, no problem. Does he do it? No. Um, no. Nope. He, doesn't, he doesn't ruin the take. I don't know. He went off to get something to drink. He just disappeared. Uh, but my friend, um, Robert Cray, who was like an ex-Navy SEAL, just, he played Zeb in that show. Just built built guy. Uh so he's he's fighting with a, a bow stick and he comes up to this waterfall and it, it sort of grabs him, but he jams the bow stick down. It's only like four feet wide. So the bow stick holds him and he's leaning over the bow stick with the water pouring over his back and he can't get off. He's like pinned by this waterfall and he's like, you know, he's, he's bodybuilding every day, lifting weights, all of that. And my character is like, in the scene like we were improvising and i go i got you Zebin, and i grab his you know shoulder and i pull him back and he comes off the waterfall until after that take he goes you know what he goes you just saved my ass he goes i couldn't push off the waterfall i was pinned and he said something about your body coming up next to me and grabbing my shoulder just changed the way the water was on me and i could push back and i go okay that's terrifying <laughs> so i said <laughs> So that's when the director, uh, his uh, Australian director, who incidentally, every show he directed, somebody got hurt. Like in that episode, somebody fell, oh. and broke, their, broke their back. One of our camera guys fell and broke his back in that show. So this is always dangerous terrain. So he goes, mm-hmm. hey, Danny, mate, uh, you want to put a tether line on in case you go over that waterfall? And I go, yeah, that's a good idea. Put a tether line on. So they wrap a tether line around my chest and they give the other end to uh, the stunt coordinator's brother. Who's this big hulking stunt guy? You know, he, he he's just like bald, big, muscular. He's got the rope. And I, you know, we're getting ready to shoot the next scene. And I feel like, hey, this waterfall's kind of tugging on my cape a little. Right. So I look over at the stunt guy and I go, hey, take up the slack. Take up, he doesn't speak English. I go, take up the slack. And I see him like let out the rope.
4: Oh, it, no. He, he read it no.
2: backwards. So he lets it out, and I literally go, no! Like, wave my hands, no! And just as I wave my hands, the waterfall grabs my cape, pulls me over, and I get yanked over the waterfall, but I have the rope around my chest, and he's got the other end, and now I'm upside down in the waterfall. My wardrobe has been stripped from my body. Everything is stripped (sighs) off. my oh, my two knives my cape my my leather vest which is buckled around my body has stripped off my body i'm upside down and i feel like I'm, if i go over it's head first 20 feet down to the rocks that's it it's over so all i can do at this moment is just put my hand out of the water like this and i feel this grab of my hand and i they pull me up so they pull me up. There's four guys on the rope, and Robert McRae, Zebin, who I just pulled off. He's got my hand, and he's straddling the waterfall rocks like he's straddling it and pulling me up. He's an ex Navy SEAL, and he's pulling me up on my hand. Four guys on the rope. They finally pull me out, and then like, and and all the director can say is, "Oh, we should have got that on tape."
4: <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh. oh. no! Uh, I don't think I don't.
2: I don't think I told my wife that story for like at least a year after the show was on. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you're like, like, call I my lawyer. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Danny, this is actually the second near death experience uh, that we've discussed in this show. Actually the third, um, one of our favorite game developers, Josh Sawyer uh, almost died in Zion national park, researching a game and actor Dian Bahar, uh, actually, almost had the exact same scenario happen in a Colorado national park, believe it or not.
2: You always have a stunt coordinator go through your shit. But, you know, elements like this is just like, you know, I know you weren't meant to go over the waterfall, but there should have been some safety in place about mm-hmm. not getting near it, you know? Oh. So nobody would get near it. Um, but, uh, oh. I, I, it's another thing. I did an episode of Baywatch and I drove this truck from like 1950s, this pickup. And, uh, I'm up on Mulholland and it's all zigzaggy and it's downhill. And in the back is an orangutan in a cage. And the scene is I'm supposed to be drunk, right? I'm an abusive orangutan handler and I'm drunk and I'm driving erratically and I'm in this pickup, but I have my pedals connected to the pickup, but they didn't work well. So they didn't stay on my pedal extensions. So there's a stunt guy laying on the floor of the pickup operating the gas and the brake and uh we didn't test anything ahead of time we're driving downhill and we're on the walking and they go we're driving a bit you know driving the whole erratic thing and they go okay danny cut you can stop and uh so the stunt guy's he stops gassing and he's pressing on the brake and nothing's happening he goes I oh no. i can't press it so now we're just heading downhill he's on the floor i'm in i'm in the driver's seat and there's an orangutan i mean you can't beat this there's an orangutan in a cage in the back of the pickup and i'm like this, is this, this this is the end of it um mm-hmm. but i he was on a thing and then i took off my belt and slid under the wheel and put both my feet on the brake with his hands and we finally were able to stop this old pickup <laughs> like you know just something simple like that where you think
1: mm-hmm. the pickup truck will stop when you hit the break, right? You would hope. You'd hope you would hope that's what would happen.
0: <laughs> well, uh, Danny, we really appreciate this opportunity uh, to hear this shared knowledge from the field. You know, we don't just like to explore individual titles, but stories like this that don't always get told. So in tradition, we'd like to offer the floor to you um, to have you share what's coming up in your life and uh, anything else that you'd like to to bring to the audience's attention today.
4: Well,
2: I would invite people to check out um, the Real Abilities Film Festival website, see when the next festivals are. A, a lot of our stuff is online, obviously. Um, we're hoping the next festival can be sort of a dual in-person online event. That'll be in New York in, in uh, April. Um, mm-hmm. And also, over the last two years of the pandemic, I've been co-producing uh, this thing called ADA Lead On. Uh, which are events for people with disabilities to perform, speak, be advocates on screen. So there's like, there's about seven different episodes, starting with the first one, uh, celebrating the 30th anniversary back in uh, 2020. Um, And then we did um, uh, a couple of pilots called Black Future Month, ADA lead on productions, Black Future Month. And we did ADA lead on National Disability Employment Awareness Month. So there are these series of of pieces where we profile talent um, that hasn't been seen before, you know, rappers, performers, dancers, all people with disabilities, and everybody gets paid uh, from our sponsorships that we get, you know, which include like uh, AT&T, NBC, CBS Studios, you know, we get these sponsorships, Sony, and so we, our, our goal is to make sure that we pay our performers and our speakers, give them some kind of a stipend, and then get them IMDB credit to help their career, and then maybe get them a little attention a little profile attention. Uh, so that's uh, uh, leadonada.org. You can check that out there and see those those seven pieces that we have. Um, and then, of course, realabilities, R-E-E, realabilities.com or .org, one or the other. You'll find it <laughs> and then march 4th of course station station 19 you can see me uh <laughs> smashed nearly crushed to death by a chandelier
0: <laughs> well danny we know you'll absolutely knock this roll out of the park uh even from under a chandelier and we can't wait to see it ladies and gentlemen danny woodburn thank you so much
2: thank you guys thanks absolutely. for having me yeah, thank you so
1: thank much